Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 5 through 15. We won't cover all those verses tonight, but we'll cover a chunk of it. In Matthew 6, starting in verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, some of you might be following along and say, and you might have a King James Bible, and you might say, um, wait a minute, whatever happened to, and yours is the kingdom forever and glory and ever. Thine is the kingdom. You ever say, where is that? How come he didn't read that? Well, before we get into our study tonight, I got to give you a little background on the Bible. The original manuscripts that were written by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the others, we don't have those. Those have been lost over time. But what they used to do before copiers was hand copy the scriptures and pass them around. There are a lot of hand copied manuscripts that prove the, the, the reality of this book. But when you take all of them, you'll find that they end up in two piles. There's one pile that's closest to the original. Let's say that the original is written by Paul and Mark and John and all that. This, that's right here. There's a pile that all are the same that are closer to that in date. We have them dated as closer to that time. And there's another pile that's closer to our time, which are all the same. But these two piles aren't exactly the same because this pile has a few more words in them that this pile doesn't have, okay? Let me give you an example. Put a bookmark here in Matthew 6 and go with me to John chapter 5. Does anybody here have an English Standard Version? Someone here have ESV? You do? Okay, read verse 4 for us. John chapter 5, read verse 4. Good and loud. There is no 4. There, what? There's no four. Your Bible actually goes one, two, three, five, doesn't it? Now, the reason it does is because if you have a study Bible, you'll notice that verse four is not in the earliest manuscripts. But to keep everybody else's Bibles all matching up, they just leave verse four out and go on. Now, go with me to, and I'll explain in a little bit why. Go to uh, Mark chapter 16. Go to Mark chapter 16 and look at verses nine through 20. Most of your Bibles, if you, have the, uh, if you have a translation that translated from this pile that's closer to the originals, you'll have verses 9 through 20 in Mark chapter 16, but you'll have a line right above it and a little note that says, this section's not in the earliest manuscripts. You have that, right? Earliest manuscripts don't have that. You, if you wanted, you can double check me later on. John chapter 11, uh, sorry, not John chapter 11, John chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11, 
the whole story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, you without sin throw the first stone. You'll see that as well. So that they don't have a big section missing, they'll put that in. But that's in this pile, not in this pile. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why over the years, the King James only people would always fuss when the newer translations came out. And they'd say, they're leaving off words. They left off the word blood. And, and they would throw all this fit. And I'm going to say this nicely. I'm going to use the word the way it's supposed to be used, but it sounds bad. They would get all upset because of their ignorance. Actually, the King James translated from this pile, which had those extra words. The newer translations tr translate from this pile, which is closer to the original in date. Older. So how did I find this all out? Let me tell you, it's kind of kind of crazy. When I was in seminary and having to learn Hebrew and Greek, I'm not your best student. Every night when we in Hebrew class and Greek class, we'd have homework every night to translate from the original Hebrew or the original Greek into English. By the way, if anybody's ever tried to do that, it takes a long time. Sometimes you'd have three to four hours of translation just for one class every single night. Well, I'm not a great student, and I didn't want to do that, but I also wanted to pass my classes. But God had blessed me with a very good memory. And so what I would do every night was I would memorize whatever the passage was that we were to translate in English. There's a such a thing called an interlinear. If you've never heard of it, it's a wonderful thing. The interlinear was a Bible that had it in Hebrew and underneath it was in English. And every night I would go home and memorize those verses. And so then when they would test us in class on the translation, they'd say, okay, Jim, on such and such verse and such and such passage, what did you, what, how did you translate it? And I'd say, boom. And they'd say, okay, good job. And then they had no idea that I didn't translate it. I just had memorized it in English. But when the test came, I would never know what the test was going to be on because they would tell us, okay, your test in Hebrew is going to be on somewhere between Exodus chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 20. Or in Greek, it would be somewhere in the Gospel of Mark between chapter 4 and chapter whatever. And so I never knew where they were going to test me. And I had never learned how to translate it actually into English. So you know what I would do to get ready for the test? I would memorize Exodus chapter 5 through Exodus chapter 20. And then when it was test time, they would give us just the Hebrew. And we had those little blue notepads, you know, those little blue books you would do your testing in? I would sit there with a pencil and I would look for words in the Hebrew that I had learned. I knew the word arom is naked. Because that was easy for me to remember. I would always tell myself, I roam naked around my house. You know, so I, I, would, I would do stuff like that and learn certain words. And so I'd go, oh, I know that word. And I'd write the word down in pencil underneath it in English. And I was like, I know that word. And I'd write in pencil in English underneath that. And then after I had learned enough, figured out, I would look at it. It's kind of like playing uh, uh, Wheel of Fortune. Oh, I know what this is. I know where this is. And because I had memorized it, I would put all the words in. And then when I had done that, I would then translate it in, on my blue book and write it in English in my blue book. Now, problem I ran into was this. As I'm looking at the manuscript and writing all the words, I had more words in my head than there was on the paper. Wait a minute. 
the English that, because I had memorized it in the King James, that's all I had at the time, I would realize the manuscripts that they were giving us to translate from were from this pile. And that pile didn't have those words. They most likely were added. You'll see that in the, if you were to do a real study of this, you'll find this. Like It'll say in some of the Gospels, as Jesus walked along the seashore. The seashore is not in the earliest manuscripts. It doesn't change the meaning of anything, but it clarifies it even a little bit. In chapter 5 of John, verse 4, the story about how an angel stirred the water is not in the earliest manuscripts. I think it probably happened. But it was, they not only hand copied, they orally passed on the scriptures. And chances are, everything that we have in this pile is of God and it's his word. But the earliest manuscripts don't have, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That was added. You understand? Now, with all that said, let's go back. I'm sorry? Of course, I, I passed the test, but barely. Because they have ways to know whether or not you really know how to translate. And they found me out. But they were impressed enough to say, we don't want you next year. And give me a passing grade. I got through a lot of my classes that way. That's right. I told the typing story last week. Go to Matthew chapter 6 now and look again at verses 5 through 15. We need to remember that Jesus has been focusing in the Sermon on the Mount on the reality and the depth of man's sin. That's what he's done in chapter 5. And now he's moving them forward into believing in and receiving God's power to deal with their sin. But if we realize our sin, but we pretend that we're righteous, we're not dealing with our sin. But we're being hypocrites. Remember, a hypocrite is someone that's pretending to be something they know they're not. You understand what I'm saying? The hypocrite, as we looked at last time, is someone's pretending to be something they know they're not. The spirit of God's job is to reveal to us our sin and our need, our need to be righteous before God. But if we have God open our eyes to our sin, but we pretend we don't have sin, we're not dealing with it. You wives know exactly what I'm talking about when you have a husband that you know needs to go to the doctor and you say, you need to go to the doctor, and they say, what? I'm not sick. Even though we know we probably should, but let's just act like it's not happening. Jesus is going to be dealing with this in our section. But go to Luke 5 real quick. Go to Luke chapter 5. Look at verses 27 through 32. Luke 5, 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Does anybody know who Levi is? It's Matthew. Sitting at a tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them and the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now you hopefully know by this point, there's no one righteous, not one. What's Jesus saying then when he says, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came to call the sinners to repentance. Those who are sick are the ones, are the ones who aren't sick don't need a doctor, but those who are sick are the ones who need a doctor. What was he saying? We all need it. 
Those who acknowledge that they're sick are the ones. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn because they're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Jesus is saying, look, <coughs> I know something that you guys aren't all willing to acknowledge. Everyone needs this. But I'm only here to deal with the people that are willing to be serious about it and acknowledge it. So remember, Jesus is now in teaching them to pray, as you're going to see tonight, and we'll continue it in the next week. He's moving them toward acknowledging not only their need and the fact that they're a sinner, but also turning to God for his power to take care of that condition. So if we, are, we realize we're sick spiritually and we turn to the great physician to heal us, we do this by turning to him and talking to him in what? Prayer. So it's very important that he starts teaching us a little bit about prayer. Now, before I start breaking down this passage on prayer, we need to understand this as well. When you come to God in prayer, don't try to impress him. He already knows your heart better than you do, and he knows what you need before you ask. Go back to Matthew 6 and take a look at verses 5 through 8 again. <clears throat> Jesus says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Remember, the hypocrites are those who are pretending to be something they know they're not. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, let me ask you real quickly, as Jesus says, don't do your praying out on the corner for everybody to hear you, but go to the secret place and pray. Is Jesus saying that we should never pray in public? You're right. He's not saying that. How do we know this, though? Because he prayed in public. Jesus in John chapter 11, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, prayed out loud and said, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I know you always hear me. I'm just saying that for the benefit of the people here. And also, you can write down, look at it later on, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. The Bible, Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, I want you in your worship service, men, to lift up holy hands publicly in prayer. The Bible teaches that public praying is okay. I'm going to show you a passage in just a second that talks about that. But what he's saying, though, is this. When you pray, by the way, you remember from last week, and Jerry, you can't answer because you answered last night. You can't answer tonight. Where's the secret place that he's talking about? Your heart. We keep reading all these passages about public and secret. He's talking about our hearts. That's where God deals with us. But he says, I already know what you need before you ask. Now, I need to com communicate something to you about this before we go any further tonight. We have read this section on prayer, thinking a lot about prayer after salvation. And that's fine. You're going to see that this template for prayer is wonderful for, even, for after you're saved. But I'm going to show you tonight that that's not the first point of this passage. The first point of this passage is to remember, Jesus is laying out their need for Savior, their need to turn to God for their sins, and their need to turn to God for their forgiveness and cleansing. So what I want you to see is, is when Jesus tells us to pray for our daily bread and all this kind of stuff, don't think first about food, physical food. Because Jesus goes on later in this message to tell them, I know about your physical needs too. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jump over ahead of time to chapter 6. Look at verses 25 through 33. 
Look at chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. They gather into barns, sorry, nor do they gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So later on, he's going to deal with our physical needs. And we'll get to that when we get to this section of the study. What I want you to see tonight is that as Jesus is teaching them about prayer, don't jump ahead to the Christian type of praying. Realize that his first purpose is to show them which when he says he knows what you need before you ask, what kind of need is he talking about? Spiritual need. That's why he's saying, don't pretend you're righteous when you're not, and you know you're not. And don't think that you have to impress God with your many words. To, maybe he'll, con what's the kind of prayers that God responds to? Does anybody know? <laughs> Short and sweet. Well, maybe he responds to those as well. But I'm going to show you from Scripture that the kind of prayers, and there's many types, but the kind I'm going to focus on tonight that he responds to are prayers that are honest and humble. Broken and contrite heart he will not despise, Psalm 51, as we've looked at. Go with me to um, Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. As you're turning there, just remember what we've already read in Matthew 6, where he talks about in the template for prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, deliver us from evil. And he deals with if you don't forgive your others their trespasses, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. The template for prayer's first and foremost purpose is to show people their spiritual need and how to rectify it. In Luke 18, though, we see some more along this line. Look at verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Who, one who humbles himself will be exalted. By the way, Jesus told a story about two people praying in public. Public prayer is not a problem. It's who you're praying to. You all have been in church long enough to know there are some people that love to pray in public, but they like to pray so people can hear them pray. But you also realize at that time they're not talking to God. When you pray, talk to God. Oh, and when you talk to God, he already knows your heart. He already knows everything about you. He, so short and sweet's not bad because you don't have to catch him up. He already knows more than you do. But he responds to honesty. 
and humility, and I need you prayers. That's what he responds to. You can write this down, look at it later. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, we're going to begin tonight to break down the Lord's Prayer. But before we do, I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 11. I want you to look at a section of Scripture here in Luke to learn some more about what God's looking for in prayer. We've already seen that He's looking for honesty and humility. But in Luke chapter 11, there's a, a section here in Jesus' teaching on prayer that will help lay a foundation for where we need to go as we break the Lord's Prayer down. In Luke chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 13. It says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forget everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? By the way, real quick commercial. Here's another one of those how much more passages we're going to be studying on the cruise in November. But look closely what Jesus says in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? So is he teaching about everyday Christian prayer, or is he teaching about get you right with me spiritually prayer? That's the first and foremost thing. Now, as you're going to see as we get into our study, some tonight, more next week, all of these things that I'm showing you tonight that he's using to point us to our need of salvation and getting right with him spiritually apply to us also on a daily basis as we remember our continual need of his grace. Oh, we don't need to get saved again every day. Don't, I'm not talking that. But the same truths uh, that he's pointing out in order for us to come to him for salvation apply to us on a daily basis too if we humble ourselves. But what I want to do from this story is I want to show you something about prayer that jumps off the page at this. Now, you know, he's not only looking for honesty and humility when, he pray, when we pray, he responds to faith. Remember Hebrews eleven six. 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. That you, he, you believe he exists and he rewards those who diligently seek him. What I want to do tonight is I want to reteach this passage again, that one I just read to you from Luke 11, but I want to pull something out in the beginning and then have us reread it. This passage, we see that the disciples come to Jesus after he had been praying. And they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, first off, is this Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount? Because he has the, somewhat of a template for prayer here. Is this Luke's account of Matthew 6? I'm sorry? 
It's not. You can see the context is totally different. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's been giving this long sermon. Here in Luke, he's not with a big crowd of people on the mountain. He's with his disciples. And he's spending time in prayer. And when he finishes his prayer, his disciples come to him and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, don't miss this, folks. Jesus' way of teaching was to live it, to model it, and then look for those teachable moments, if you will. He didn't get up that morning and say, okay, guys, you're in a three-year program of discipleship, and today's lesson is on prayer. Have a seat, and I'm going to teach you about prayer. Get your notebooks out. I'm going to teach on prayer. No, he lived prayer. And the disciples started to realize, man, there's a lot that goes on. Whenever he comes out of his time with prayer and the Father, things happen. And they say, come and teach us to pray. Let me just ask you this question. When you teach your kids to pray, do you teach them to pray by telling them to pray, or do you teach them to pray by living prayer? modeling it but I think the disciples were afraid that Jesus wouldn't do it look closely how they ask again one of his disciples said to him Lord teach us to pray as John taught his disciples I was reading this one day just studying it for fun and that jumped off the page at me do you remember when your kids used to ask you something, but they're afraid that you're going to say no? So they would throw that little clause in, Susie's parents are letting her. You know what I'm saying? I think the disciples were afraid that Jesus wouldn't. And they did, John taught his disciples. And I think this whole passage reads totally different if you look at it that way. And we're going to see that Jesus' response to their asking him to teach them to pray is couched in that whole, you don't understand who it is you're talking to if you think you have to twist my arm to get you to know how to talk to him. And so he quickly reminds them of the template for prayer that he's already given in the Sermon on the Mount. Has anybody noticed Luke's account is a whole lot shorter than Matthew's account of the sermon of, of, of the model prayer? It looks like almost the Reader's Digest version or the Cliff Notes version. It's almost like Jesus says, remember what I taught you about prayer? Boom, 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 boom. And, but he's almost in a hurry to get to the story because that's what he wants them to see. And he tells the story about a guy who's in bed. It's midnight. His kids are in bed with him. The doors are shut. The lights are out. And his friend comes knocking on his door at midnight. And he says, friend, help me out. I just had someone come to my house and I got nothing to give them. And by the way, hospitality back then was a big deal. When someone came to your house, you washed their feet, you gave them something to eat, you did all this stuff. And the friend runs to his friend at midnight, knocks on the door and says, hey, I don't have anything to give him. Could you give me some loaves of bread to help out? And the guy on the inside says, dude, it's midnight. The doors are locked. I'm in bed. The kids are in bed. It'll upset the whole house if I get up. And the Bible says he won't get up and give him bread because he's his friend. He does do it. If you read it there, it says he does it, but he doesn't do it because he's his friend. He does it because, in English Standard Version says, he gives him what he asked for because of the man's impudence. What are some other words that your translations have? King James says importunity. Persistence. Some translations will say boldness. You're going to say boldness? I'm going to add you another word. Stick with me. Stick with me. I don't think persistence is the best word by itself. It makes sense when you put it with the other words. By itself, persistence is not good. 
Because actually, listen closely, if you go to Luke chapter 18, he tells a story about this widow who goes to this unjust judge, and she wears him out with her coming. And he finally says, good grief, she's wearing me out, I'm just going to give her what she wants. But he says in that story, is God like that? And the answer is no. If you think God will respond to your prayer because of your persistence, your faith is in your persistence. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your faith is not in God. Your faith is in your persistence. And a lot of you think, well, I've been coming and coming and coming. God, I've been coming and coming and coming. Your faith's in your persistence. So persistence by itself is not a real good word. This is a hard word to translate. If you would actually learn how to translate the Greek, it's a hard word because it's not. There's not an English word we have for it. That's why so many translations have. have we, some say persistence, some say boldness, some say importunity, which none of us know what importunity means. And mine says impudence, which is close, but it's not there either. The word I'm going to add to you tonight is this. Shamelessness. Shamelessness is another good word. Now, I'm going to put them all together and explain it to you this way. Let me explain it to you in a way that I think will help. Let's just say you're driving. It's 2 in the morning. Your car breaks down. You have a cell phone, but you don't have AAA. You have a spouse that's home, husband or wife, whichever one you are. You have a spouse at home with a sick kid, and you know you can't call them to come help because the kid's too sick and you can't get them to come help. Who are you going to call at 2 in the morning to come help you when you don't have AAA? You can't call your spouse. Who are you going to call? Yeah, don't put your finger, don't point at me. Here's the deal. Here's what you're going to do. Your brain is going to run through the Rolodex of your friends, but you're not going to call just any friend. You're going to call the friend that you know is not only able to help you at this time, but would be willing and glad to. Stick with me. We'll explain it in a second. See, there are some friends you're going to think, well, I could call that person. No, I'm not going to call that person because that person's going to, the whole time they help you, complain about the fact that I've been telling you you take better care of your car. You don't put enough oil in it and all this stuff. You're going to call another friend. You're like, no, I'm not going to call that friend. That's a friend that's going to say I owe him. I could go through all these friends and all these friends, they could help, but you know what? I'm not going to call I want a friend that I can call without shame. I want a friend that I can call boldly because I know they're not only able, they'd be glad to help and would be offended if they found out I was broke down and didn't call them. That's the one you're going to call. Jesus tells this story that he made up, but he does it to illustrate this. He said the guy gives him what he wants, but he doesn't do it because he's his friend. He does it because the guy saw him as someone that he could go to at midnight and boldly, shamelessly knock on his door and say, I need your help. And therefore, I say, ask, and it will be given. You don't got to ask me to twist my arm. And John taught his disciples to teach you to pray. Let me tell you the heart of the Father. He's not only able, he's willing. Ask, it'll be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Will the Heavenly Father ever, when someone comes and says, help, I need salvation, will he say, oh, no, sorry, you waited too long. No, if you come to him, he'll say, I need your help. And he'll respond with, with his grace. Now, here's what I want to point out from this, though. He then goes on and says, which of you among you, if your son asks for a fish, will instead give him a snake? If he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? 
If you then are who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So what I want to do is I want to show you, again, we are going to get to breaking down Matthew chapter 6, I promise. We're going to be breaking down the Lord's Prayer, but I want to show you how all through Jesus' time on the earth, he was teaching people the heart of the Father as they come to him in prayer. Go to, uh, let's go here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Go to Matthew chapter 9. Go for it. So do you think this was a prayer that was used a lot for, for the disciples' point of view? I mean, Are you talking the, the template for prayer that we're going to be looking at, the, what we call the Lord's Prayer? I honestly think that Jesus' purpose, which I'm going to show you, Jesus' purpose was just to give a template for prayer. Uh, the, the foundation of how we should pray, our attitude, the things we should be seeking from God, that's all it should be. Unfortunately, it turned into a magical prayer and all sports teams pray it in the, you know, the locker room before the game and a lot of churches have to pray it every service and we've lost, it's not a magic prayer, it's a template for prayer. And to be honest with you, you'll never see Jesus pray this prayer. But if you study Jesus' prayers and you go and look at John 17, you're going to see him start, O Holy Father. Does that sound familiar? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you're going to see that template is followed by Jesus as he prays. It was never meant to be a ritualistic prayer. It was never, never meant to be that. Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 27 through 29. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. But now, here Jesus asked them before he heals them, he asked them this question, Do you believe that I'm able? What's he trying to teach them? Faith, come to me because you believe I'm able to do this. And they said, yeah, we believe you are. And he says, according to your faith, it'll be done to you. Go to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, look at verses 12 through 13. It says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, or if you desire to, is what he's saying, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched his hand out and touched him, saying, I do desire, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. All right, now, interestingly, what's something a leper hadn't had in a long, long time that Jesus gives him here? Physical human contact. Isn't that amazing? You want to talk about not only is he able, but willing? He didn't say, all right, I'll do it, but don't let, you know, stay away. The guy says, if you're willing, if you want to, you can make me clean. I know you have not only have the power, but if you have the willingness, Jesus says, I do have the willingness. And not only did he show the willingness, he touched him. And he healed him. Again, what's Jesus teaching? Come to me, believing that I'm able and I'm willing. 
Now, we got to go deep now before I can go any further. So you're saying, Jim, that if I believe he's able and he's willing, I can ask him for anything, and I believe he's able, and I believe he's willing, then I ask it and it'll happen? you got to be real careful that you don't take it and make it all of a sudden that you're God and he's not. Go to uh, Mark chapter 9. Go to Mark chapter 9. We know that Paul believed that Jesus was able and willing. And he prayed three times. If you know in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he prayed three times that that issue in his flesh would be removed. And God said, no. Keep that in mind as we keep reading here. Go to Mark chapter 9. Look at verses 14 through 29. It says, when they came to the disciples, by the way, the they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They've just been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. The other disciples weren't with them when that happened. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain, and they come to the disciples, and they saw a great crowd around them, and the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they weren't able and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you, and how long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to kill him or destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, we're going to keep reading in the story in a second, but i got to stop. That's probably the best prayer in the Bible right there. Lord, I do believe. That's why I came to you and came to your disciples. But i got to be honest. I don't really believe. Does anybody else Understand the, the depth of that. Does anybody else feel that? I do. Folks, I believe God's able to do everything he says. I believe that God's powerful enough to do miracles. I believe that God's able to do and provide and do all this. But you know what? There are times that I show that I really don't. I do question it. Me too. Even though I've seen him do amazing things in the past, when the next episode comes and the next test the next situation he brings me into, because remember, if you've heard me teach on it before, God's always trying to humble us and test us and teach us like he did in the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8. He's always putting us in situations to remind us of our dependence on him, show us where we really are and our response to it, and then to teach us how to walk with him and listen to what he wants us to do. It's, your life is continually in that situation. I've told you before, have you ever noticed right about the time you get tires on the car, the washing machine breaks, and God does an awesome miracle, and then the next situation comes... Lord, I do believe, but I, I don't. Help me in that area that I don't believe. Go ahead. Well, I had a question. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, uh, my, my, for instance, I've been praying about something, and, you know, a physical ailment. Mm -hmm. And it's been going on now for a few years. Mm -hmm. And I know God's going to heal me. I mean, I, don't, I have total faith. Okay, let me ask you a question. And please hear how much I love you when I say it the way I say it, because I don't want to come across hard. You can't have faith. Unless God said he would heal you. You understand what I'm saying? 
Um, you can't have faith that God will heal you unless God said he would heal you. You see, faith can't begin until God has spoken and made the promise. I can, we've been taught that faith is, I believe it so strongly, God has to do it. That's not faith. That's presumption. When God says something, we put faith in what he said. For example, if you walked up to a person on the street today and said, hey, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And they say, I have faith God's going to take care of that. Well, you say, I love you, but he's already spoken how to get right and go to heaven. You put faith in what he said. You put faith in his son, what he did to us in his life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. To just say, I believe God's going to heal me when God hasn't promised that he would heal you. You understand what I'm saying? It's not faith. It's hope, but not a biblical faith. Now, if God's given you a word that he will heal you, then do it. Then you have faith. But unless he's promised in this instance that he'll heal you. Years ago, does anybody remember the man Wayne Watson? Does anybody remember the Christian musician Wayne Watson? He wrote a song years ago because of an episode in which they had friends of theirs. They were a young couple, and they had their young couple friends where the mother, a uh, young lady, was in the hospital, and she was dying. And uh, the doctor came out and said she's home free. They all interpreted it as she's going to live. And she died. And he wrote a song called Home Free. And the song pretty much says... We interpreted the answer as God was going to heal her here. She's home free and she's healed, but it was there. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so, biblically, if I were to take you to Hebrews chapter 11, it says there are men and women who are commended for their faith. Some escaped the edge of the sword. Some received their children back from the dead. Others were sawn in two. Others were put to death with the sword. These were all commended for their faith. You see what I'm saying? Faith is in what God has promised, and he said. Does, does God's word promise that he'll heal everybody? No, it doesn't. If we were to take the health and wealth gospel that people teach out there to its unbiblical extent, nobody dies. Because if we all believe enough, nobody dies. That's not what the Bible teaches. So what I'm saying to you is having faith that God will heal you isn't faith that God's going to heal you unless God has told you he's going to heal you. Do you have faith that God's able to heal you? I hope you do, because the Bible says he is able. But he may choose, and that's where we're going to get to, for his purposes to say no. And when we understand the heart of who it is we're talking to, that he's not only able but willing, that means when he says no, that's actually better. Sounds crazy to us. Okay. Jesus... Aren't we glad the father told Jesus no when he prayed in the garden? Here's what I want. But Jesus was told no by his father. Did, did God the father not love Jesus? Good grief. The Bible's pretty clear on the fact that he loves his son. And everything's going to be centered around his son. And he's going to receive glory forever and ever. But he told his son, whom he's with well pleased with many times, he told him no. Because it was greater. That's why we got to be careful because we've been taught faith is, I believe it, and God has to do it. He only can do it or will do it when he said. Go ahead. No, well, mm -hmm. I was going to also add to mm -hmm. that, though, is, is, you know, I honestly feel like God is going to heal me now, like you were saying. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Then, that, then go keep going. Yep. That's great. Well, and that's, and you know what? That's great. That's a great way to do it. Because it may be here and it may be in heaven. And sometimes he may tell you. When I went through cancer, I don't know if I was going to live or die. And I had all these people saying, oh, Jim, uh, God's going to heal you. Well, he didn't promise that. Now, in my instance right now, the cancer went away and I'm in remission. But I can keep it getting checked. And the doctors have even said the kind of cancer I have likes to come back. But you know what? Either way, I'm good. But that's what we have to do. Now, look at this story here. We'll keep reading. All right. He says, all things are possible for him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? I mean, Jesus, we've been able to cast out demons before. You sent us out two by two and we cast out demons and we were amazed that the demons responded to us. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, again, some of your translations say what? Prayer and fasting. The earlier manuscripts don't have word fasting, but fasting's good. Fasting's fine, because as you're going to see in Matthew 6, when we finish our template for prayer, Jesus is going to teach about fasting. I'm going to do a whole session on fasting. So eat between now and then. No, I'm just kidding. So here's what I want you to hear is this. There's a depth here that I don't have time to get into, but I want to lay it out for you. We've heard this story and how this kind only come out by prayer and fasting. And many of us have been in situations in churches where churches will call a time of prayer and fasting because we think that if we pray and we fast, that'll get God to move. Your faith's in your prayer and your fasting. And also, when Jesus said this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, did he fast and did he pray? He didn't pray. He didn't even pray. So what was Jesus saying? He didn't say, oh, Father, I'm going to do something powerful here. I need your help right now. He just told the demon to come out. He had been living a life of prayer and fasting. He had been living a life of constant communication with the Father, walking in righteousness. By the Bible, you know, the Bible says that when we, even though we don't lose our salvation, when we sin as believers, we quench the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We put out the Spirit's fire in us. There's a, and I'll get right to you, Jim. There's a level of praying, folks, that as you walk closer with the Lord, he's able to do more through those kinds of people that pray and walk with him and really believe that he's able and willing. But they also are people that walk so close to the Lord, they can hear him when he says, I know you think it's best that I say yes here, but you're going to have to trust me. My answer is no, and you'll be okay with it. Those people walk in power. You're going to say something. Go ahead. Exactly. 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 Right. Yep. We're going to get into all that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> he wasn't saying, why weren't you guys fasting? He's teaching them something. 
He wasn't saying, why weren't you fasting? That wasn't it. Because he himself said, as we're going to see in our study on fasting, they don't need to fast. I'm here. So we'll get to all that. So he wasn't chastising them for the fact they weren't fasting. Okay? Keep that in mind. But at the same time, what he was showing was, there's some things, folks, that you just can't pray a I believe prayer. There's more that has to go on ahead of time to be able to see the response of power in that time. You understand? Know, that's what he's showing them. To, to have this kind of a close walk where you can say to this mountain, be moved, you've got to live a close, you just can't all of a sudden say, I believe it, I name it, and I claim it. You got to be careful. You got to be careful. There's a depth to this stuff that's, that's not unfortunately seen by a lot of folks. So now, we'll go back to Matthew chapter 6. Let's go back and see how Jesus is teaching them how to pray to the Father in order to be saved. He says now in verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, go to Proverbs chapter 9 and look at verse 6, oh, sorry, verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture to help someone begin the journey of getting saved. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of who? The Holy One is insight. Look at that again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Jesus says, here's how you pray. God already knows what you need before you ask him. But here's how you go to him. Our Father in heaven, you're holy. By the way, when we say, our Father in heaven, you're holy, what are we acknowledging? I'm not. We need to have a fear of the Lord and the fact that he's holy. How many of you remember your psychology classes back in college, your basic psychology 101? When you have a fear episode, what is your one of two typical responses? Fight or flight. Remember, we all remember that part. That's the part with tests we could pass. If you look at Adam and Eve in the garden, it says they were afraid after they sinned. When they heard God walking in the garden, they were afraid and they what? They hid. They did the flight. God doesn't want us to hide from him when we realize he's holy and we're not. You'll go on further and you'll see the nation of Israel in a fear of God went before the nation of Israel and when they went into all these nations, what did those nations try to do? Fight them. That doesn't work either. When you're afraid of God's holiness, you're not to fight him because you're not going to win. Oh, by the way, there's another reaction that we didn't talk about in psychology class, but the deer in the street told us about that. You remember the deer in the headlights? And they did nothing. By the way, did that work out for the deer? Now, it didn't work out for the deer either. So to do nothing will do you no good either. What is God wanting from us then when we realize he's holy and we're not? He doesn't want us to hide from him. He doesn't want us to fight him and say, I think you're wrong or I think I can be righteous. That's not going to do us any good. He doesn't want us to stand there like the deer in the headlights and say, oh, I don't know what to do. He wants us to what? Humble ourselves. Go to him. He's our father in heaven and he's holy. 
We're to come to him. And that goes into where we're going to get to next week. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. We humble ourselves. How many of you remember the story of the lady in the Old Testament who the prophet would come by and she built a room for him. And he said, you know, uh, what would you like? And she says, I'm good. And the Holy Spirit told him she would like a child. He says, you're going to have a child. And she said, don't you get my hopes up. You better not be lying to me. And she has this child, and then as the child grows, a little later, he comes and he goes and he says to her, Mama, my head hurts, dies in her arms. And she takes him and she puts him up in that room that she had built for the prophet and put him on the prophet's bed. And she goes down to her husband and she says, Hey, honey, can you do me a favor? Can you, can you let me have a servant and a mule? I need to do something. He says, Is everything okay? She goes, Oh, everything's fine. Isn't that crazy? Her son just died in her arms. He's laying up there dead. Her husband says, everything all right? She says, everything's okay. She goes on this journey to go find the prophet. The prophet sees her far off, and he sends his servant to go find out. He says, hey, servant, go find out. Father's not telling me why she's coming. I know that lady, but he's not telling me why she's coming. So the prophet, sorry, the servant gets there and says, is everything all right? She says, everything's fine. But when she gets to the prophet, she just falls on his feet. Didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? Why did she say to her husband, everything's fine? To the servant, everything's fine. But then ball and blubber and fall at the feet of the prophet. I'm sorry? More than that. She went to the one who could actually do something about it. When you realize your spiritual condition and the Spirit of God has done His work in your heart, don't run to the preacher. Go to God. Go to the one who's holy and has the ability to fix your condition. Go to Isaiah 29. In the time we have left, I'm going to show you real quick. This truth has been all through the Old Testament. Go to Isaiah 29 and look at verse 13. The gospel has been in all the way through the Old Testament. And oh, by the way, you're not getting out five minutes early. Look at Isaiah 29, verse 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. By the way, the passage Jesus quoted when he was on the earth. You're going to see it later on in our study of Matthew, but look closely what it says. These people draw me to me in the mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He knows the secret place. And their fear of me is just simply a commandment taught by men. How many of us can talk about the fear of the Lord, but do we really fear the Lord? We understand His holiness. Jump down to verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, talking about Israel. Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. That means they'll declare me separate and holy. They will sanctify the who? The Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Those who go astray will come to what? 
Okay, does that sound familiar to any other verse we looked at tonight? Remember I told you that foundational verse from Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One brings what? Understanding. Here God says that at the end of the tribulation period, we know, we've studied it, when Israel, the Israelists left, turns to the Lord, they're going to acknowledge that He's holy, and they're not. And they're going to have a holy fear of Him. The Bible says they're going to look on Him whom they pierced, and they're going to weep, and they're going to mourn. They're going to realize their spiritual bankruptcy. They're going to realize they're poor in spirit. They're going to grieve over the fact that they're poor in spirit. They're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and He's going to give them salvation. One last passage. We'll close tonight with Luke chapter 1. Mary prays this type of a prayer in her Magnificat. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my what? Don't miss this, folks. Mary was a sinner. She needed a Savior. There's no one righteous, no, not one. That includes Mary. Oh, she's, the Bible says she's to be revered and, and honored, but she was a sinner. But look at her prayer. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And what? Holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The Bible's real clear, folks. You want to get right with God? You've got to acknowledge his holiness and your lack thereof. And you go to him in that way. Next week, we'll deal with your kingdom come. You will be done on earth. We're going to deal with our daily bread. So I'm going to give you the homework I gave Tuesday night's group. So write these passages down because I want you to study them for next week. I want you to write down Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Exodus 16, verses 1 through 4. And John 6, 25 through 59. And John 6, 25 through 59. Let me give those to you again. Exodus 16, 1 through 4. John 6, 25 through 59, and you're going to see that when the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, he's not talking about Panera bread. I'm going to show you from Scripture that he's talking about Jesus. Does he care about our daily bread and when it comes to food? Yes, but that's not what the Lord's Prayer is teaching us to start with. I'm going to show you from Scripture the daily bread is Jesus. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.